My name is Chris Guilfoyle. I'm a jazz guitar player, I suppose. I lead my own band called Umbra. I play in several other bands like 3G and Aleka. I'm also a jazz lecturer in DCU, the Jazz Performance Program. This series is aimed to kind of portray, promote and archive the different guitar players here in Ireland. And be talking about jazz guitar, and jazz guitar has about roughly I'd say a hundred years of history, mm -hmm. like more or less. If you would have to place your conception of how you play the guitar, where would it, from which sources would you draw the most in that spectrum? Um, talking specifically about the guitar playing, um, I would say I've been mostly within the contemporary jazz guitar, so you're talking like from the late 70s, 80s onwards. So, you know, like from Schofield and Teeny onto Kurt Rosenwinkel and Gilad Hexelman and all those kind of guys. So I'd say I place myself there in terms of guitar playing, but I also draw a lot of influence from saxophone players from the like bebop era and like post-bop, so like Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, Wayne Shorter, those kind of people. So I also put myself, especially when I'm playing standards and stuff like that, I think I kind of go for more of that kind of a thing. You, you mentioned already a couple of names. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have this one, like a certain phase when you're studying the guitar, this phase where you really try to emulate one specific guy or a specific sound or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I had a total Kurt Rosenwinkel fanboy phase. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, between when I was studying in, in New Park, like between second year and third year, I was really, really into his playing. Um, because I guess from my own background, from before I played jazz, I was kind of way more of like a rock guitar player and I started to, I realised that he was using a lot of these like rock techniques but in a jazz context um, and also using like distortion and overdrive and stuff like this and it totally blew my mind, I was like wow you can do those things in jazz. <laughs> um, so yeah, I really had a, I spent a, quite a bit of time just listening to Kurt Rosenwinkel and trying to find every possible recording and video and like, and I did a transcription as well. In, in Newark as well, my third year transcription. This is the Kurt Rosenwinkel stuff. What did you do? Do you remember? It was um, it was actually wasn't from his album. It was a, I think he's a Hungarian piano player called Daniel Szabo, and he's an album called uh, Vertigo, and it's the title track from that album. Kurt Rosenwinkel is on that track, and he plays a solo in it, and that was the solo. Thankfully, I don't know how I got it approved because it wasn't very jazzy. As like, was, there was no two five ones, <laughs> and it was in eleven eight, but. They allowed it somehow, but yeah, that was that was the song that I did. When you speak about early influences, like you said, you weren't originally a jazz mm -hmm. guy. What was your early influences in music? So, um, like for the guitar, the, like even the main reason why I picked up the guitar was Jimi Hendrix. I remember they used the uh, Voodoo Child on a track, like an ad for a guitar or sorry, guitar, a uh, car ad. I can't remember, it might have been like a Renault Clio or something, I can't remember what car it was, but I really I remember sitting there watching the TV and this ad came on and the beginning of Voodoo Child started and I was like, wow, the guitar is pretty cool, the guitar sounds cool, so um, yeah, I then asked if I could get a guitar for my 12th birthday and I, they got me a guitar and I listened to a lot of Jimi Hendrix at the beginning and then from there I kind of got into more like grunge, like, like Nirvana and Pearl Jam so I was really into Pearl Jam's lead guitar player, Mike McCready. Um, he's a really, really great guitar player. And then from there, I kind of went totally anti-guitar in a way, like at least guitar solo style guitar playing. I went in, I spent 
most of my mid-teens up to my like early 20s playing punk rock. Okay, cool. Um, but even within that, there's one particular band called Strung Out who were blending like punk rock with like speed metal. So, <laughs> so there was like guitar solos and really technical stuff and I totally gravitated towards that. Um, so yeah, definitely like Pearl Jam, Hendrix and Strung Out were definitely my three big influences before I ever really got into jazz. When you got the guitar when you were 12, as mm -hmm. you said, did you receive any kind of formal education? At the, like, did you take lessons right yeah, away? Yeah, I did. Well, not, not straight away. The first year, I think, from what I remember anyway, the first year I just had the guitar and I was messing around and I learned a few things. And then from there I went into New Park. <laughs> Um, my very first guitar teacher was Mike Nielsen, um, so <laughs> he was teaching me how to play the pentatonic scale and, and how to play Hey Joe and how to play, you know, all that stuff. It was nothing to do with jazz at all. Um, but he was a great teacher, it was really great. He was so enthusiastic about everything, it really kept my passion for the instrument going, you know, because at that age it's going to be easy to lose it because you get distracted by other things, you know. So he really was a really great teacher and kept really kept me focused on the instruments and wanting to play the guitar. Mm. Yeah. Kind of, I listened to one of the tracks you had with your band, Umbra, mm -hmm. which I think it's called Seattle. Yeah. And that kind of starts a, a bit atypical for what you would think of a jazz band yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of those grunge, mm -hmm. maybe even some open string chords. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and some of them are a bit more jazzy than others or mm -hmm. whatever. There is a bit of that, but like, is that a deliberate dedication to that early influence? Yes, absolutely. So that track comes from an album called West, which is coming out next month on the 26th of July. All of the music is based off this trip I did three years ago. I traveled up the whole west coast of North America from LA up in, into Vancouver in Canada by myself using only public transport. And I couch surfed the entire time, so I was staying with complete strangers. All of the tracks are named after the major cities that I visited. So I, and I stopped in Seattle and I knew when I was gonna write this music, I was like, I can't have a song called Seattle and not, you know, tip the hat to the grunge scene there. And so, yeah, that's why it's all open chords and very grungy sounding at the start, at least, because I really wanted to try and, um, you know, describe that grunge thing within the context of a jazz band. Going further on that road of like early musical influences and education, and what was the first thing that tipped you toward jazz? I've always had jazz around me growing up, obviously, because with my dad, Ronan, and Connor, so like I've been listening to jazz all my life, essentially. But I guess what I found with the stuff that really started to get me into jazz was more of the modern stuff than the classic jazz. I kind of started listening to more of the more contemporary jazz first and then started working my way backwards because I found that with the contemporary jazz stuff, it was more in line with the music I was listening to at the time anyway. So I started to hear like, oh, there's all like odd meters and riffs and like, you know, some of these bands like um, White Rocket, which is a band, um, Greg Felton and Sean Carpio and an American trip player called Jacob Wick. They were really kind of opened my eyes and ears to what, what was possible within jazz because they were definitely kind of using some rhythmic techniques and stuff that you might hear from like a band like Meshuggah or something like, mm. like that. So that's what got me hooked. Uh, I started to realize, well, you know, it's possible to do the things that I love from the music I was playing, but also be able to improvise. Because I found that like within the punk scene, it was very difficult to do like the improvisation stuff. And I was really into improvisation, mm. but that's not really the vibe in that scene, you know. And 
I did have a kind of like an odd meter punk band at one point, and we had a moderate, moderate <laughs> success, but not, not quite um, as much as I'd hoped for. So yeah, I was kind of in this in between world where I really liked the energy and all that stuff from punk rock, um, and math metal and and all those kind of things. But I also really wanted to try and you know express myself creatively through improvisation. Uh, but wasn't really finding that there. But then if I was listening to kind of more straight ahead traditional jazz, that wasn't really resonating with me at that point. But then I started to come across like White Rocket and um, VJ Iyer and Steve Coleman and all these things. And suddenly I was like, well, okay, all of this stuff is happening here, but they're also improvising. So that's how I started out. It was like way more into the contemporary stuff. And then I kind of worked my way backwards from there to get into more traditional, you know, classic Blue Note era jazz and even before that as well. So. And just as you mentioned, uh, your dad, Ronan Gilfoy, mm -hmm. and your uncle, Conor Gilfoy, was there ever a deliberate attempt from the family to draw you into the jazz world as a kid? Or not, did they just leave you on your really. own? Not really. Nothing deliberate. Like, I mean, the very first instrument I ever played was piano. Like, when I was eight or something, I used to go up to my dad's music room and kind of tap around on his keyboard. They suggested, why don't you go and get some piano lessons? And I did, but I didn't particularly enjoy it. I think I was just a, it was just a bit too early for me. And then I didn't play anything at all from 8 up until 12. And there was never a point where they were like, you should be playing an instrument, you know, you should be doing this. There was never that. And, you know, and I naturally came to the decision that I wanted mm -hmm. to play the guitar. I do remember, like, not long after having the guitar, maybe a year or so, my dad saying to me, like, you know, said, you know, you might really like rock and, and all of this music, but, you know, basically the seeds of jazz are planted in your heart and they're going to blossom eventually and as much as I was like no way dad I'm gonna be playing like I'm gonna be playing in like stadiums and I you know to thousands and thousands of people um he was right in the end <laughs> so that that was basically as much as it went you know in terms of like any sort of pressure to play there was never a pressure for me to play, okay. to play the music but it you know it just kind of naturally came to its conclusion yeah Probably more like leading by like uh, example or something yeah, like that. Yeah, he yeah. enjoyed that, and then you probably naturally gravitated yeah. towards yeah, exactly. anything like that. Yeah. That was a really nice introduction of how you got into the into the genre of jazz and mm -hmm. your kind of musical development uh, so far. When you talked earlier about Kurt Rosenwinkel and you really had like a phase where you kind of admired his playing, mm -hmm. did you did your choice of guitar tone and gear affect that as well? It did. I actually spent quite a lot of time trying to avoid sounding like him, even though I was really into him, because I didn't, like, it took me a long time just to play with having, like, a small bit of delay in the, like, in my sound, um, because I was already, like, if I put delay in, everyone's just kind of like, oh, he just sounds like Kurt Rosenwinkel. Um, so I did try my best not to go for that thing, like, the specific, like, delay, clean sound thing, but definitely I was emulating all of his technique stuff, like try, you know, all the hammer-on stuff he does, all the sweet picking, you know, definitely doing that transcription really helped me get inside the way he approaches playing and the way he attacks certain notes and what notes he hammers on, what notes he pulls off and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So in that aspect, I was absolutely just totally gone for it. Yeah. But I really, tr I was trying not to emulate his sound. In some ways, it was a bit of a detriment because my sound up until maybe about three years ago I didn't think was very good like I didn't really like my sound and it wasn't until I did my masters in Switzerland and I was working with a teacher there called Frank Mobus and we spent like two months talking about sound and he was the one who said you have to put some sort of delay or reverb or something in there to, mm. to really expand out the sound and he was absolutely right 
I could have stood to maybe try and emulate that sound a bit more just to, you know, kind of, yeah, just to improve my overall sound. But I was just so self-conscious of not wanting to just sound like a Rosenwinkel clone that I, that I didn't do that for a while. Technique-wise, yeah, for sure. And yeah, I mean, the guitar, I just never, like, really took to big arch tops. I found my elbow was always really uncomfortable because just from from all the guitars I'd had previously, I'd, like my first guitar was like this cheap, and um, it was called, the name of the guitar was called Legend. It was a Legend <laughs> Strat, Strat ripoff. And then from there I had like a big metal Jackson super thin line guitar. And then I got an Ibanez. Oh, I can't remember the name of, this, of that particular model. It's really nice, but again, like super Strat style body. And then I got a different Ibanez, uh, an Artcore model that they don't make anymore, but it was also a super Strat style body. So when when it came to getting this guitar, I wanted to have that kind of arch top natural sound to it, but I wanted it also to be as thin as possible because I just never, the elbow, this elbow thing with the big arch tops just never sat with me comfortably. So I just didn't want so it wasn't a specific thing of like oh Rosenwinkel plays D'Angelico's or you know Gibson yeah. 335's and that's why I want that type of guitar it's purely down to like comfort and just what I'm used to playing okay yeah. speaking of that guitar what is that guitar that guitar is a custom made guitar by Chris Larkin who is a luthier from Kerry can't remember exactly where I came across his guitars I, I was just kind of interested in getting a custom guitar because I felt that because I was kind of being a bit specific about that I wanted this thin body but with a big big acoustic sound that kind of the, just the general manufactured guitars were probably not gonna I was not gonna find that balance <laughs> so I thought okay I'll well, probably customize going down the custom route is probably the best way to do it I mean I looked at some of the American like you know yeah like D'Angelico or Victor Baker those mm -hmm. kind of guys but it's just working out way too expensive than what I had so I started think a bit more locally. Yeah, I looked at John Mariardi, of course, and I came across Chris, and Chris told me he was doing some, there was some music conference thing in Dublin and to come up and try out his guitars, so I did. And he had this, what what's known as an ASAS Semi, which is his um, like semi-acoustic model. And I tried it, but I actually didn't really like the neck on it that much. It mm. was um, very chunky, like didn't feel very nice. So. He also had one of his version of a Stratocaster. So I tried the Strat and I really liked the neck on that. And because the beauty of customization, he was like, okay, well, we'll just swap out the necks. And then I said to him, well, you know, I really want to have it, I want you to try and make the guitar as thin as possible, but with the biggest natural acoustic mm. sound you can possibly do. So basically, the kind of solution he came up with was to actually scoop out the back. So the back actually has a bit of like a hill on it if you will um, so that all the sound is being reverberated right in the middle but you still have the body it's actually still super thin so yeah it was great working with him he's a really really great guy really great luthier very easy to work with very reasonable prices for for what he does everything he does he doesn't use com like any computerized stuff so it's all handmade and it took about three or four months i think from from start to finish so yeah really happy it does contain the top is spruce that I think he sourced from Wicklow. Oh, that's so, very cool. So it's very cool. So he, he he's part of some um, alliance, some guitar alliance that they try to use local wood, like as much local woods rather than you know importing in stuff from South America, you know, like rosewood and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And trying to be a bit more environmentally friendly in that way, he tries as much as he can to use 
proper like Irish woods and stuff like that. So yeah, he's a really great, really great good team. I'm not sure actually if that's even remotely true, but I've seen a few gigs where Mike Moreno played a guitar like that, but it's yeah, probably not the same. It's not it's the same. So Mike Moreno plays a, a Marchione or a Marcione, I'm not 100% sure how it's pronounced, but I remember when I saw that guitar and I saw the way the F-holes were shaped, I was like, I, I want a guitar with F-holes like that because it just looks so cool. Um, so I showed it to Chris and I was like, is there any way you can make F-holes look like that? And he was like, yep. Yeah. Sure. Oh, so that's so, a customization you've seen from exactly. I asked them to make these FOs. Normally, the ASAS comes with like traditional, traditional FOs. Yeah. But yeah, I saw that kind of design, and I was really into it because my older Ivan, as the one before that, the Artcore, had a similar kind of it was like kind of two jagged diamond-looking FOs. So I was kind of really into that thing of not having the traditional style FO. So and then when I saw Mike Moreno's guitar, I was like, oh yeah, there. They're amazing looking. So yeah, that's a customization. It normally come with traditional traditional FLs on its ASAS models. The, the beauty about this series is mostly diversity, that mm -hmm. everyone is very, very different. And for example, in the in the first episode where we did, there was nothing like, like paddles. And in this mm -hmm. episode, we're fortunate enough to have some paddles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I shot a bit of that, so we, we, we blend that in anyway. But mm -hmm. if you could just talk us through what you use in general. Okay, so I mean, my, my foray into pedals as it's fairly recent, like I said, I was trying to avoid all of this stuff. Yeah. And then with my teacher, Frank, in Switzerland, we really got into the whole sound thing and really started, like, he he basically brought in his massive pedal board. And we tried out all the different combinations. He brought in, like, not only pedal boards, he also brought in, uh, like, 25 different picks. And we tried every single one of them. I just played the same scale over and over again and just kept trying out different picks to find the... What, what picks worked with this guitar and stuff like that. So so I've got a Moore Re-Echo, which is just a simple delay pedal. It's just simple enough delay. I just use it as my general clean tone. Uh, it has three settings. It has an analog, a real echo, and a tape echo setting. Generally, I use the analog setting. Um, I find it the nicest. Just, you know, very subtle. I try my best not to get it to um, be too much in the foreground, especially if I'm playing with like Umbra, there's a lot of stuff that's super rhythmic, you don't really want to have echoes of the rhythmic stuff you're playing happening at the same time because, you know, it becomes very confusing <laughs> yeah. um, about who's playing what. So yeah, I try to keep it as far in the background as I can, um, but just to, you know, expand the key. Then I have this pitchfork from Electro Harmonics, which is basically a harmonizer pedal. So, um, but it's got amazing tracking on it. So it basically it's kind of like their answer to the Digitech Whammy. Okay. So like when if I play a note and then just hit the pedal, it'll do that kind of Whammy kind of Digitech Whammy thing. You can get an expression pedal for it as well that you can control, but I just didn't do that. You have the option of different intervals, so from minor seconds all the way up to, I think, minor sevenths. They don't do major sevenths, I don't know why. And then you can also switch into an octave mode. So you can have low, like one octave lower to two octaves lower. Like insane, like nice. to the point where you can't even hear it anymore. Um, and it even goes another set of octaves lower. That's, that's kind of not really worth even doing because <laughs> you can't I mean at least with this amp it doesn't have the bass frequency control to be able to deal with that and um, so generally what I use it for is oh yeah you've also got a blend option so you have 
you can either have it harmonizing down, which is what I have it set at the moment. So this is down, of, like what I'm playing, and then down a fifth. Mm -hmm. Or you can have it harmonizing up from what you're playing, or you can have both at the same time. So you can have you can mix them, and then you have a blend control to blend in the effect. So what I've been using it for recently is actually just for chords, because you you can change a basic triad like like that into this beautiful little piano style chord that you just would never be able to play on the guitar. Like it's like the voicing is not physically possible. So I've been trying. I, I still need to explore it a bit more. I need to like sit down with like a book and write down exactly what that chord is once I once I play it, so that I can kind of use it a bit more. Um, like when I really feel like just playing a chord, I can just go, okay, I'm gonna play this voicing it now. Mm. So for in the moment, I'm kind of using it more like as a solo guitar effect for intros and things like that, yeah. where I where I'm not comping basically. But I really want to try and use this in a comping situation because cool. yeah, it's just. So yeah, I've got a Strymon timeline. Uh, interesting story about this timeline is that it's was it came in with the first batch of timelines that ever came into the country. Okay. So <laughs> I was at this music expo. Actually, it was the same thing where where I met Chris and we tried out Chris Larkin. Where I met where I tried out all his guitars. Um, there was a stand saying you know they were bringing in the Strymon stuff, and I'd seen the timeline like there like an ad on YouTube or something, and I was just like, oh my god, I need this pedal. They were like, yeah, the first shipment, first shipment ever is coming in like in two months. And I was like, I was like sign me up. So, um, yeah, it's one of the first ever timelines in the country is this this particular one. It's a super powerful pedal. I barely know how most of it works, but it has two sounds that I use quite a lot. So it has like a harmonizer, kind of a harmonizer as well, but it's a bit more shimmery than the pitchfork. So I have it set to, I think it's set to an octave at the moment. So... You know, if I even if I play Yeah, octaves are easier because obviously you don't want sometimes you want to play voicings, you don't want to be like totally reharmonized. So I can play voicings like that and it sounds cool. And then the other sound that I use quite a lot is the swell sound. So it's basically like having a volume pedal without having to use a volume pedal. So Even though it has like hundreds and hundreds of different possibilities, but there are two amazing sounds that we're definitely worth paying for. Finally, on this one, I have this is a Joyo Vintage Overdrive. It is my favorite overdrive pedal I've ever had. Uh, it cost me forty-five euro. Um, I've had I've had a Rath. I've had a Ibanez Vintage Reissue Tube Screamer, and this beats them all for sure. So I. I can't, I don't know why it's so good, but it just has this sound, like it was exactly the kind of overdriven sound that I was like. So, yeah, it's like, it's kind of meaty and thick and like, but yeah. punchy in a way. Yeah, like punchy, very, yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah, and I never really could get that with the rat or the, especially the, the tube screamer, I could really ended up not liking that pedal at all, even though I know it's such a classic overdrive sound that everyone, you know, a lot of people gravitate towards, it just 
was not the sound I was looking mm-hmm. for. I bought this for yeah, forty five euro, brand new, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And I really hope it never dies. Yeah. Uh, so, because obviously, I'm sure if it only costs forty five euro, I'm sure the internal stuff is probably not of the highest quality. Yeah. Um. So I'm hoping that it'll just it's a workhorse and it survives. Um. But I'm sure I can just buy another one. It's not exactly. It's not going <laughs> to kill me financially. Maybe it's just this one. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, I have a few. I also have a an electro harmonics freeze pedal that I use sometimes. Um. And I also have a very old octave pedal that was my dad's that I borrowed off him once and never gave back. Sorry, dad. Um. So that one's kind of cool because I, I use it more if I'm playing maybe more like free jazz stuff because. The older octa pedal, then like so, it's a Boss OC two, um. But the newer OC twos can actually deal with chords. The okay. old ones can't. And when you play a chord, it does this crazy, like glitchy, mad sound that nice. can be really effective. Especially if you use the like swell sound and that and play a chord with the OC two, you get this like kind of like dying mega computer <laughs> kind of sound that um can be very cool in the right context <laughs> obviously okay. not when you're playing like beautiful love in a restaurant it's probably not not the best one to go for but but yeah in the right context it's a, it's a great set but the yeah. last part in the chain is Diane. yeah we talked about it briefly so this is a zt club it's the same company that make the lunchboxes lunchbox amps they're really great amps um i bought this off lee meehan because um, one of my students it's an amazingly powerful amp. it's super loud like I don't think I've ever had to push the volume control past four and a half ever on a gig playing really loud music, no problem. So a really yeah, it's a really great amp. It has a really nice sound. So I don't drive, so for me to have a tube amp is not the best because obviously you know pushing a tube amp on a trolley and loading it onto buses and everything, you're just gonna wreck the tubes. Yeah. So this is definitely the closest sound I've had to something like a tube amp without having a tube amp uh, it, I, before this I had a Roland AC90 acoustic force 90 and it was a nice amp and it was portable and all of that but it was very boxy sounding mm. like, well really didn't have a, a very clear like the projection wasn't really great on um, but this one projects great it works amazingly with my guitar it's really funny because like this guitar doesn't seem to like Fender Twins. And it's the only one. And doesn't. Fender Twins are like, you know, the stand, like if I play a jazz festival if I'm playing abroad or even here, like if I'm playing a gig that is maybe put on by the IMC where they're providing the backline, it's like Fender Twin is like the standard amp that's there. And I have to spend at least 20 to 25 minutes with a Fender Twin to get a sound that I particularly like. I don't know exactly what it is. It seems like with a Fender Twin, the bass on this guitar just goes like and then the treble is like ear piercing so it's really hard to control and so I mean I wish I could just like put on my rider if I was that famous enough to have a rider to um, to be like I only want to play this amp and you have to find me this amp because they're discontinued unfortunately so they're not so easy to come by Um, so yeah it's definitely been the best amp I've had so far for sure I watched a video, a video of you on mm-hmm. YouTube where you played like um, Oleo on a great gig with uh, I think it was Eric Ineke. Yeah. It was your dad, Roland Gilfoy, mm-hmm. and it was Michael Buckley, yeah. I think. Yeah. So um, two questions to that <laughs> gig. One was kind of when I seen that, and when when I seen you in other contexts, 
it seems like there is very little of the kind of cliche classic blues vocabulary in mm -hmm. your playing. It's a, uh, and I wanted to ask you, is that um, a conscious decision to avoid that kind of, what yeah. you sometimes associate with the guitar? Sure. Like, yeah, yeah, it is a conscious decision. Um, I I guess one of the things that would kind of work, why I don't have a lot of blues vocabulary or like, like let's say, traditional guitar blues vocabulary is because of the nature of the music I was listening to, right? So once I got past Hendrix and I was in the punk rock thing, it was way more like, like especially that band Strung Out, it was way more in this like shred metal thing than, than like a bluesy thing like... Stevie Ray Vaughan or something like that yeah. um, so that part that kind of part of the guitar history isn't really in my ears or like in my playing generally and because of that I think that's one of the main reasons why I don't have that particularly blues vocabulary um, and you know without being super controversial sometimes you know it can be easy to play the blues scale and everything sounds you know you can play the blues scale and everything sounds fine but mm -hmm. it yeah, I didn't want to have a crutch of like if there's a specific chord progression that I can't get through then I'll just use the blues scale to kind of get around that I want to be able to play through um, any progression and I spent a lot a long time working on harmony like really trying to like from in like being playing inside to also like outside playing and super imposition of chords and all that stuff so yeah it's kind of it's a mixture of that like the fact that it was never after I like you know when I really started to kind of develop as a guitarist, so like even though I was listening to Hendrix when I first started and I couldn't really play, when I was getting to the point where I was starting to kind of develop a bit of a technique and really get into it, that aspect of the guitar was kind of gone at that <laughs> point and I was way more focused on like shreddy, like big scale, like runs way up from the bottom to the top, all of this stuff. So yeah, I think because that part wasn't really like I wasn't really listening to that kind of stuff during that part of my development that's why it's not really in my vocabulary as an improviser now since I just touched on the on the on the video I seen you playing mm -hmm. Olio I'll link it down below just talking about those kind of gigs because you've been fortunate or like I mean obviously work very hard for it um but like to play with some really really high caliber musicians mm -hmm. like you played like with Liebman you played those gigs with Ineke when he comes over yeah. with obviously like local heroes like Michael Buckley sure. or your dad yeah was there kind of a learning curve for you adapting to those kind of gigs is there a different kind of pressure when you when you play with more seasoned musicians who yeah I mean it kind of it works in two ways like yeah it definitely feel the pressure but I am also learning so much on stage just like with someone like Liebman especially so like Dave is kind of like somewhat of a mentor for me so um you know after it, like when I first played with Dave technically the very first time I played Dave I was like 15 <laughs> I played on one tune in Whelan's and I basically played some pentatonic shred stuff but uh, but like the first like let's say serious time I played with them you know at the end like I would learn so much just through playing and then he would always give me some sort of advice afterwards about what I was playing or how how I could do something a bit better and that kind of generally happens with most of those kind of big name people or like more seasoned professionals that I play with so same with like David Binney or someone like that you know we played two gig we did like a five-day tour and after the second date he we had this kind of duo section together and we talked a little bit about like what he would like in that section and how it would help him and you know so you learn loads by playing with these guys but yeah I mean 
there's definitely a lot of pressures. I mean, it gets a little bit easier every year, but I mean, the first time I was playing with Liebman when I was only, I mean, I'd only pretty much just graduated from New Park. Um, they're pretty intense, yeah. And, you know, you're very self-conscious about what you're going to play and you're trying to, you know, make sure that you play all the right things and you want, want to, you know, you also want to try and impress them, you know, because naturally. Um, so, yeah, there, it's a very different thing than, like, when I'm, when I'm playing with Umbra where it's like everyone, they're all my peers and we all know each other really well and we're all good friends. So it's a very different kind of approach in a way. But um, I would love to be able to play like the way I play with Umbra with those guys but it's always going to be a little bit little bit different because you know they're such great musicians and they've you know 25 to 30 years more experience than I ever had than I would have at this point so yeah it's always going to be a slightly different thing but it's always an amazing experience and you just learn so much from playing with people like that. Last thing, uh, you mentioned you got this amp uh, from Lee, yeah. <laughs> um, a student of yours. So <clears throat> yeah. just touching on that, uh, what kind of role plays uh, teaching in your day-to-day -day life or in your career so far? Well, it plays quite a big role. I mean, I do about 50, well, this year I did about 15 hours a week of teaching in DCU. So, you know, it's quite a fair chunk um, of my week is spent teaching. Um, it really changes a lot like the more experienced I get then the more my priorities change about what I should teach and how I should teach it so I think like when I first started out teaching guitar in in when it was in New Park um my priorities about what the guitar players should be able to do are very different from what they are now you know I think I'm a bit more actually I'm a bit more experienced and you know I'm a bit more seasoned in teaching so my objectives kind of have changed quite a lot so before it's like oh you know I used to be very I used to be way more I think I was a bit more strict when I first started teaching in terms of like, like no it has to be this way it has to be this way and now I'm, I'm a little bit I mean I still there's still things that I will absolutely be like you can't do that especially when it comes to there's like picking techniques stuff because my, my role in DCU is I'm the first year guitar teacher like the one-on-one -on -one lessons so Everyone is coming in generally, at least for the guitar players in the in the university. Everyone's kind of coming in from a rock slash self-taught background. So my job, or the way that I see what my job is to do, is basically everyone's coming in and the levels are all over the place. Like you know, you might have five guitar players and some are a bit more experienced, some are less experienced. And basically, my what I see my role is basically to get everyone at the same level before they go into second year and that's basically just technique 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 and so yeah that's kind of like that's my philosophy is just trying to make sure that everyone whatever weaknesses one person has i can get build them up to whatever that other person the other student's strength might be but that other person's who might be stronger at one thing could be weaker at another thing you know so it's very it's varied in that sense so yeah, that's kind of what how I see my role in first year is really getting into technical things about what way you should hold the instrument, fingerings, specific fingerings, how to visualize the fretboard properly, which is, I think, definitely the most difficult thing about the guitar. I think the visualization aspect of the instrument is really difficult. Mm. And I also think that it's not very well taught. Like, other than my, when, when I was in first year, in New Park, my teacher was this great guitar player called Ariel Hernandez, who um, Argentinian guitar player, and he was very into this visualization thing. Like you see a chord, 
and you see the scale built within the shape of that chord mm. and and he really drilled that into us in first year and really helped when it comes to improvisation i think especially for playing jazz if you can visualize if you're playing a chord and you can see the scale in that position it makes playing jazz so much easier on the guitar because it's so hard it's like the guitars i think i remember seeing an interview with kurt rosenwinkel where he says you know if you're just learning how to play like you know each like the basic open chords you know the guitar is not so bad but once you get into improvisation and jazz it becomes the most difficult instrument in the world and there is definitely some truth to that i think <laughs> like you know we're the only instrument in jazz i mean if you exclude the electric bass um where we have the same notes on different in different areas you know mm -hmm. so we always have to be like you know, juggling that all the time about where am I going to play this C note? Where am I going to play this D note? What string is that going to yeah. be? What fret is that going to be? Um, and I think with this visualization thing, you know, you can really help with that whole thing of knowing where to place a note and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So, so I'm really, that's kind of where my teaching is now, is more about that getting correct technique, proper posture, and being able to visualize the fretboard in a, in a, in a clear and concise way. Cast thing is just, uh, first of all, thank you so much for yeah, your time. That no was really fun and uh, a lot of information in there. And it was really cool to see like your approach, your take on things. It's it's very, very interesting. And the last thing would be just like people who come to Dublin or anywhere else, uh, where can they see you and with what? Okay, so, I mean, I guess the most regular place I would play would be the Dwarf Jar, also known now as the Music Cafe on Parliament Street. So there's jazz there every Wednesday, usually with Matthew Jacobson on drums and Cormac O'Brien on bass and Daniel Rourke on saxophone but the change is quite a lot so so that would be probably the most regular place you would catch me I play gigs in Arthur's um, I do a few gigs in Baggett's Hutton um, and then the next Umbra gig is actually at the Manchester Jazz Festival um, on the 26th of July, which is also coinciding with the album release. Um, so that's the next Umbra gig. Um, we also have something coming up in Ireland in August, but it hasn't been officially announced yet, so I can't say anything more than that for now. Um, but it's going to be very exciting. That's, that's, that's as, much, <laughs> as much as I can say. But yeah, that, they're probably the main, the main places you can catch me. But um, I have a artist page with all my dates and all that stuff if you want to. We're definitely going to link that yeah, down below. Cool. Um, thanks for your time. That was Thank great. You. Yeah, great cheers, to have you on. Cheers. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, cool. And now cool. we're going to play it too. Yeah.